Well, before we look into God's word this morning, I want to I say a prayer for us. So let me do that. So Father, now, as we come to this time where we receive instruction from your word, I pray that you would grant us the gift of understanding and clarity of the truth. May the Spirit of God take this text and apply it personally and individually to every person in this room right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The queen rolled into town with her royal entourage all about her and also with much anticipation. She envisioned this day for quite a while and it was finally here. And as her caravan made its way through the busy streets of the capital city, she couldn't help but wonder, was it all true? Were all the stories that she'd heard about the king's wisdom and wealth, were they really true or were they hyped up and overblown? She would soon find out. With much fanfare, she was brought into the palace and introduced to this one whose reputation had so captivated her. Now here he was, standing before her, the famous king of Israel himself, the one that she had heard so much about. After exchanging the usual pleasantries required of royalty, she made presentation of many gifts that she had brought him, spices, precious stones, gold. She hoped this lavish expression of honor would melt away any barriers and open the door to meaningful dialogue. The Queen of the South had not come so much with a political agenda as with curiosity. She came with questions, hard, difficult questions, crafted specifically with the intent of testing this man's world-renowned wisdom. She was also hoping to be given a royal tour of the palace and the grounds and the rest of his vast estate and to see with her own eyes if the reports of his creativity and his vast wealth were really true. Well, over the course of the next several days, her eyes and ears took it all in, and the Queen of Sheba was not only not disappointed, she was completely blown away by the whole experience. And as she prepared to return to her own people, she bid the king goodbye, and she said, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even the half of it was told me. In wisdom and in wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. Well, what the great queen may not have known was what lay behind, what was underneath all of Solomon's endeavors, what prompted all of his accomplishments in the first place, whether or not he told her about the great experiment that actually gave rise to everything that she saw, it's not really clear. But we know what prompted it all, because we have in front of us the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which clues us in. And in our study of this very fascinating book, today we're arriving at the section of this journal where King Solomon is going to describe everything that he did during that experiment, that quest that he was on to find true meaning and true fulfillment and happiness in life. Even though Solomon was a Jew and believed in God, he wanted to experience life from the perspective of someone who does not take God into account very much. 
who just lives life on the horizontal plane, who's searching for happiness only within the confines of the visible material world that we live in. So we know that, that perspective, that worldview is called humanism. Humanism. And that's a perspective on life that's minus God. We all know people who have this secular mindset, right? I'm talking about our friends, our co-workers, maybe sons and daughters, perhaps parents or siblings, people we know, people that we love. To me, studying this passage was a great prompt to pray even harder that the Lord would lead my own loved ones who are far from him to the same conclusion that Solomon arrived at. So here was the great experiment. The king basically decided that since he could, because when you're a king, you can do whatever you want, I guess. Since he could, he was going to order up the sampler platter of life. He was going to taste all that life under the sun has to offer. He was going to arrange to experience everything this world holds out to us as meaningful, as significant. His intent was to be able to determine for himself if all of those experiences really bring happiness, true happiness, satisfaction of the soul, or if they would end up leaving him empty. And so he sets out, and the quest begins. And as Solomon recorded each of these various pursuits that he engaged with, he also weaved in his own reflections, his own evaluations all along the way. And this is just fascinating to me. So we're going to dive in. If you have a Bible or on your device, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And uh, you can take notes if you want on your uh, study outline or on the app. What is it that brings true happiness? That's what he was after. And so as an intellectual type of guy, where he started... Number one, he decided to sharpen his skills of discernment. It's like he was saying, I'm going to improve my ability to distinguish between what constitutes wisdom in this world and what makes something foolish. That way, my sharpened intellect will guide me along in the rest of my journey. So here's how he put it. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And one of the guys I went to college with had that verse on a plaque in his dorm room. <laughs> Much knowledge increases sorrow. But here Solomon is saying, look, I went after it and I learned a lot, but really it just made me more disheartened. I found out more than I really wanted to know, which is how I feel just about every time I go on Facebook. It's like, I didn't want to know that really. <laughs> In spite of training himself to be a master evaluator with extremely sharp skills of discernment, that didn't make him feel any better. He looked out at the world with a keener set, sense of perception, and he actually became more depressed. There's a lot of heartache out there in the world, isn't there? 
And so he said, well, that's no good. I'm going to look elsewhere. And he decided to go in the complete opposite direction. Remember, he's on a quest, right? He's trying to find what's going to bring him happiness. So number two, where he went next, is enjoying lighthearted silliness. Why not, right? Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Some translations say mirth. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Enjoying lighthearted silliness. Now, he doesn't get specific in what he tried here. Uh, maybe he did a talent search and brought in the best court jesters in all the land and brought them in before him in his palace. And maybe he said, tell me your best jokes. Perform your funniest routines for me. Do some silly stuff. Make me laugh. Make me chuckle. But whatever it was, evidently it didn't do much for him because what was his conclusion? Empty, futile, vanity, right? What good is it? Then going further down that path, he turned to something that many people turn to, cheering himself up with alcohol. Verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So I think he stepped back and said, you know, maybe I'm taking things too seriously. Maybe I need to loosen up a bit. I mean, my friends all tell me I'm too uptight. So if I'm going to really dive into these frivolous things here, maybe a few bottles of wine will help me out a little bit. Some commentators think he just went out and got plastered, got wasted, drowning himself in alcohol. Others look at this and they think this was more about becoming an expert on the subject, like a connoisseur of fine wines. He does say his heart was still guiding him with wisdom, right? So he, he was trying to keep his wits about him even while he was drinking. Either way, after this little excursion into adult beverages, he decided to move on to other pursuits. Apparently this experience wasn't that satisfying to him either. Just like, okay then, well how about if I go on a building spree here? How about if I engage in some massive building projects? So that's what he tried next. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Note that. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools. It's pretty cool, huh? Pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So some people think Solomon was basically trying to recreate paradise here. Have his own little secular garden of Eden without any forbidden fruit, right? No taboos, nothing's off limits here. And I believe these were the sites that were so impressive to the visiting queen from the south when she came, along with his palace, of course. Houses and pools and gardens and parks and orchards. So now, this is an entirely new realm of endeavor, right? Going from drinking and partying now to designing and planning and managing huge construction projects, being industrious, employing his engineering knowledge and skills, developing the property, improving the landscape. Is there anything wrong with that? 
Of course not. But the whole point of the quest was not to discover what was right or wrong. It was to discover what makes life worth living, what makes life meaningful, what fills up the void, fills up the emptiness on the inside. And of course, we couldn't help but notice that thread that keeps reappearing here, that self-focused thread. I made this for myself. I made myself this. I made myself that. I made myself this. And that tells us that underneath all of these efforts was what? Just selfishness. Just like the learning had been and the amusements and the drinking. I'm just doing this for me, (laughs) to make me happy. I don't see much evidence here of any desire to benefit other people, to bless others, to improve the community. And that theme of self-focus continues into his next endeavor, which was acquiring servants and possessions. Verse 7, I bought, purchased male and female slaves. And had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. More than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. In that culture, this was a status thing. The more servants you had, the more household servants you had, the more highly regarded you were. It goes to authority. The right to order people around and tell them what to do. And expect them to carry out your your orders. Accumulating more flocks and herds had that same effect. It said, look, here is a person of status. They should be looked up to. They should be highly regarded, highly esteemed. Then in addition to all that, Solomon number six was also amassing a fortune in precious metals. Verse eight, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Of course, that likely refers to all the spoils of war, right? That he'd acquired after battling and wiping out neighboring rulers and neighboring territories. Probably included certain valuable items that he would have kept for himself, maybe in his palace or in his room. Mementos of his military triumphs. So you get the picture here? Storehouses full of treasure. And yet, evidently, Still not really satisfying him on the inside, not really filling up that emptiness. His heart yearned for more. So he went where a lot of people go. He started to indulge himself in entertainment and sexual escapades. Verse 8, I got singers. I got me, went out and got me some singers. Both men and women. I guess that was a thing in those days, a mixed chorus there. And many concubines, the delight of the children of men. So envision this now, now. every night at the palace, concerts, right? These great concerts featuring the best entertainment he could find, the best entertainment money could buy. And that was followed by the best in sexual experiences, courtesy of a massive harem of beautiful women. I mean, what more could a man want, right? He's got it all going on here. Wine, women, and song. It's all there. Man, this is the kind of life most people only dream about but never get close to attaining, and this guy was living it. Man, it doesn't get any better than that, right? 
Surely his life had to be full. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. I'm still conducting this experiment now. So he was achieving notoriety and fame that was unmatched, unsurpassed. Nobody could think of anybody else in their nation's entire history who was greater than this man, Solomon. Certainly that was his intention, to stand above everyone who had come before, all the great ones. And now he was alone at the top. Must have felt good, right? Like, I finally arrived. I'm there. I'm at the pinnacle of success. This is it. Verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. I've worked hard, now I'm getting to enjoy all this. He was abandoning himself to unrestrained pleasure-seeking. I didn't keep anything back. If I wanted it, I got it. And as a philosophy of life, this is called what? Hedonism, that's right, which is kind of a subset of humanism. This is unrestrained, unabashed, pleasure-seeking. This is hurtling headlong into the river of delights, doing whatever you think will feel good in the moment. And he's very clear that he did it all for who? For himself. By design, he was purposely self-indulgent to see if that was really the path to deep fulfillment and satisfaction of his heart. All right, well, that was his journey. Those were his pursuits. Now it's time for some reflection, some assessment. You've done it all, King Solomon. You've pursued all the paths your heart desired. So what's your take? What's your assessment of your experiences so far? Are you ready for this? It's a bit disconcerting. In summary, his reflection is this. Life stinks. I was going to use another word, but I thought this would be more palatable. Life stinks. Seriously, Solomon? Life stinks? How can you say that? And he gives us four reasons. Number one, he says, life stinks because all of my experiences left me empty and life still seemed pointless. Verse 11, then I considered... Like you step back for a moment. I got to think about this. I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was empty. It just didn't do it for him. The whole thing. He got to experience what most people are chasing after. Think about this. And in the end, he concluded it just wasn't. Fulfilling, he was still empty. Do you remember a few years ago when life started to kind of come unraveled for Tiger Woods? Remember that? At that time, I wrote a short blog on, on his plight. It went like this. So, Tiger Woods finally confessed to things. Remember all that got exposed? Infidelities, trysts, mistresses, pregnancies, cover-ups, 
The sordid details have come out. Now his wife is humiliated. His life has become very complex. His endorsements are drying up and his career is in jeopardy. But please don't miss one of the most important lessons, maybe the most important lesson about this. Remember this, Tiger Woods has been the epitome of what so many Americans are aspiring to. Achievement, fame, wealth, independence, freedom, luxury. He had it all. And yet, disturbingly, all of it wasn't enough to satisfy him. Evidently, something was still missing. He needed more. This should be terrifying to many people. I don't know that it is, but it should be. It should terrify millions of people because they dream of becoming everything that Tiger was. But alas, all of his fame and notoriety and wealth did not satisfy Tiger Woods in the deepest parts of his being. And then I I added this, and it won't satisfy you either. But what a beautiful terror it would be if it points you to the only true satisfier of the soul. So often the the prospect this world holds out of achieving and attaining worldly success, of making it to the top, of reaching the pinnacle, holds so much promise, so it is said, but often people who get there say, you know what, it kind of left me, wasn't that great? Over-promise, under-deliver. And so Solomon says, you know what, I made it to the top, I achieved worldly success, My conclusion, life stinks. (laughs) It's not what it was cracked up to be. Second, he says, "I, I feel this way because while gaining wisdom is certainly better than being foolish, in the end, the same fate awaits everybody. All will die in the end. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. He's saying, you know, I don't know how someone who comes after me is going to do any more, try any more things than I've tried. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Verse 17, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. Now remember, this is the view of life under the sun, right? This is the perspective where there there is no eternity in the secular worldview. There is no running into the arms of Jesus and living in eternal bliss with Him forever. There is no final reward. There is no future judgment where all wrongs will be made right. It's all just the here and now. And with those lenses on, Solomon bemoans the fact that no matter how well a person lived in this life, in the end he will experience the same exact fate as the idiot who squandered away his days in foolishness. 
who says, I hated life. Life stinks. Third, he says, I feel that way because it's uncertain. When I think about it, how well the next generation that follows us is going to manage what we give them, what they inherit from us. That's something to think about, right? Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Can't you just see him? I got this picture where he's just like going, seriously? I'm going to work hard all my life and then I'm going to turn it over to someone and they might just blow it? How disheartening is that? turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. (laughs) This also is vanity and a great evil. And we got to be honest about life. This is true. This does happen in this life under the sun, doesn't it? Everybody's going to die And then what you worked so hard for your whole life will end up in somebody else's hands and they might blow it. It could happen. It could happen. But now for us, we're hopeful, right? We're hopeful. We all hope that our offspring, our heirs, will continue our awesome legacy of world-class stewardship, right? That's what we hope for. But you know what? There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Google it. (laughs) Stories abound of young adults who got a big inheritance and flittered it all away on frivolities. Solomon lamented this possibility and it just added to his disillusionment. He already said, I hated life. Now he adds, I hated all my toil, my work. And I gave my heart up to despair. Life really stinks. Then he said, I feel that way also because life is full of frustrating toil at work. You ever feel that way? During the day, and then agitation and restlessness at night. Verse 22, what has a man, what, excuse me, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, which means frustration, even in the night. His heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So to summarize Solomon's reflections on all of his experiences, this is basically it. Secular life, secular life, lived on a purely horizontal level with no God and no eternity. Well, it just stinks. It leaves a person utterly empty after having promised so much. Days are frustrating. Nights can be even worse. Then when it's all said and done, you die. No matter whether you've been wise or foolish, no matter if you got to experience lots of pleasure or just a little bit of pleasure, your legacy here on the earth after you're gone is uncertain at best. Your kids might squander everything you've worked for and you might be forgotten altogether. What's the point? Vanity of vanities, life just stinks. Now, right at this point, there's a shift, thankfully. 
there's a noticeable shift. Because up to this point, there's someone who's been fairly absent from the equation. Who is it? God. God hasn't been talked about much. This is life under the sun, right? But now, it's as if Solomon, like, jolts himself awake, and he summons that theistic worldview and says, come back, <laughs> come back. I want to think correctly again, and he brings that back to the forefront of his mind like he reclaims his consciousness of God. It's kind of like he's thinking, dude, time for a new outlook. Enter God back into the picture. One commentator wrote this, having exposed the bankruptcy of our pretended autonomy, the preacher now points to the God who occupies the heavenly realm who dwells above the sun. And with that lens now back in place, at least for a few moments, Solomon pens a conclusion based on everything that he's experienced and reflected on so far. Listen, here it is, verse 24. There is nothing better. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, in his work. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Ah, enter God back into the picture, right? For apart from him, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... And in this context, the sinner is the person who's searching for joy and happiness apart from God. To the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind for the sinner, is what he's saying here. In other words, the best way to live is to be thankful for life's simple pleasures. Good word, isn't it? To be thankful for life's simple pleasures, to see them as gifts from the hand of God, to look for ways to enjoy your work now, not just thinking about retirement, oh, then I'm going to really enjoy life. No, find ways to enjoy your work now, all the while seeking to please God in all things. Joy comes, he's saying, from acknowledging God and striving for His smile on your life. I got to thinking about this. Be thankful for life's simple pleasures. A hot shower. That's one of life's simple pleasures, isn't it? Get up on a cold morning. You have hot water in your home? Take a hot shower. So often I'm like, God, thank you for this. This is, this is wonderful. A warm bed. It's a gift from the hand of God. A good meal. Ah, that was good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. An encouraging conversation with a friend, a hug, a hug from a loved one. Life's simple pleasures from the hand of God, he says. You know this, Friday is my day off. It has been for 30 years. 
And since Shirley and I are empty nesters now, we usually start the day not feeling rushed to do much of anything. We brew us up a hot pot of coffee. We bring our mugs into the living room. We sit in our little rocking chairs there in the living room, sip our coffee, turn on some good worship music, sip our coffee, look out the window, catch up on the week, sip our coffee, listen to worship music, (laughs) pray together. We usually do that for a couple of hours. We don't have little kids around anymore. I know some of you do. We did that. They're all big guys now. They're grown and gone. And sometimes when we're sitting there rocking, sipping our coffee, we look at each other and say, thank God for the simple pleasures of life like a hot cup of coffee, a good rocking chair, great companionship, a roof over our head, warmth. We're blessed. Just the simple pleasures of life come from God. Thank God for life's simple pleasures. So here's the whole sermon compacted into a single sentence, okay? Here it is. Maybe I should have just said this. (laughs) God is alive and he is good. God is alive and he is good. And you can truly grow to love and enjoy life. You can truly learn to, to grow and enjoy life if you will learn to see life, all of it, as a gift from his gracious hand. Even the hard stuff. I have a friend who, every time I go up to him and say, uh, hey, how you doing today? He says, better than I deserve. He says it every, every time. It's kind of annoying, actually. But <laughs> better than I deserve. But he's got a point, and I wish I had his perspective more than I do. Because the truth is, I'm getting way more from God than what I deserve. I mean, theologically speaking, I deserve to wake up in hell this morning. And I didn't. You know what? It's a good day. See, our problem is this. We, we start comparing our lives with other people's lives, right? Their storybook lives on Facebook, Right? And we look at our, you know, boring old lives, and, we're th- and we start to get this, like, souring on life. Like, I'm, I'm getting a raw deal here. Like, like, life stinks, right? And we start to slide into that mindset. And, and because we're comparing our lives with the lives of other people, we're comparing what we have with what they have or what they seem to have or what they're pretending to have. And we think we're on the, you know, we're getting a raw deal. We're getting the short end of the stick, comparing our lives with others when we probably ought to get up comparing what we're getting with what we deserve. I'll tell you what, your gratefulness quotient will go up exponentially if you start thinking about life that way. Hey, it's a good day. (laughs) I'm getting way, way more than I deserve. I, I don't want to say this lightly, Because there are people in our congregation who have cancer, which is horrible. But you know what? 
There's an eternity with God awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus. And the C word will never, ever be spoken again in heaven. None of that. There will be no chemo in heaven, no treatments like that. And if we could just get up in our days and think, you know what? Even if I'm afflicted with debilitating diseases, it's still a good day. I'm getting more than I deserve. And eternal life on top of it. You understand what I'm saying? I think we need other people to help us see life in that way. Because on our own, just isolated, we can too often just slide into that comparison with others thing. Their life looks so exciting on Facebook compared to our boring old life, right? We need people in our lives who will remind us that God is good, that daily He loads us up with His benefits, every day, when you think about it. That life from His hand is a blessing, even when it's hard. And yeah, the simple pleasures in life come from Him. All right, one final thought before Megan, who's quaking in her boots over there. No, she's not. She'll do fine. Before she comes and shares a testimony with us of how she has experienced the goodness of God in her life, I want you to think about this. Centuries later, After all these experiences of King Solomon were just a distant memory, another king would arrive on the scene. This one said that he came to earth to offer himself as a sacrifice so that people who trust in him might have the opposite of an empty, pointless, futile, frustrating existence. He said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, overflowing life. Ironically, though, this king, despite his message, was not very well received. Many people misunderstood him and his purpose for coming. And really, he ended up being a disappointment to most people. And at one point, when those who opposed him were expressing their deep disillusionment with him, he made a very interesting statement. Listen, this is Matthew 12, 42. He looked at him and he said this, The queen of the south, will rise at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Near her, the end of her visit with the king, the queen of Sheba offered this tribute, really to God. She said this, Blessed be the Lord your God, Solomon, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king to execute justice and righteousness. And as true as that statement was of Solomon, it would prove to be even more true of Jesus. Think about it. For while Solomon taught wisdom, Jesus was wisdom personified, embodied the true wisdom of God, right? And yes, Solomon built the temple, the magnificent temple, but Jesus was the temple of God. The true temple of God in which the true sacrifice would be offered for the sins of mankind. And while Solomon's temple was eventually wiped out and destroyed as it was, this one would boldly say, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. 
Yes, Solomon was certainly a mighty and powerful king, but his domain did not extend beyond the Middle East. But one glorious day, Jesus, the eternal king, will sit on that throne in Jerusalem and rule the entire world in righteousness and justice. And so as great a king as Solomon was, Jesus Christ is the true and greater Solomon. He is the one who, as our beloved king and our father, bestows his bountiful good gifts upon his people every single day. And we ought to thank God for that. Join me in prayer, would you? Father God, we just want to thank you for being good. And we as a congregation declare that you are good, even when life is hard. And there's some people going through some really difficult things. Lord, I pray you would give them an outlook and a perspective that magnifies not just this life, but eternity and who you are. Thank you for Megan's story and the others I've been able to hear this weekend, Lord. It's been so encouraging. You are alive and you are good. And that is the testimony of your people here today. Accept our worship and praise now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.